Tonight I'd like to talk about the first foundation of mindfulness. That's mindfulness of the body. If you ever spend some time with the discourses of the Buddha, one thing you discover in, in his teachings is that he has a lot of really neat analogies. Analogies that he spoke about you know, 2,600 years ago. And, and whenever you read the discourses and you come across one, it, it's always surprising uh, just at how appropriate they are for our current situation. And the Buddha described the mind that's not used to practicing mindfulness. That's the mind that's untrained. And very definitely, when we come on retreat the first couple of days, especially if you're new, but you discover this untrained mind, and the way he described it was like a wild monkey in a forest. And it's kind of like the wild monkey is swinging from one branch to the next, extremely agitated, extremely restless, never really settling on one branch, but going from one thought to the next thought to the next thought to the next thought. Really not so balanced, not so calm. And to me, when you begin to sit and take a look at your experience, oftentimes that's the first insight that you discover, is just the fact that the mind is really so much of the time out of our control. We can have the best intentions. We could come here with really totally committed to it, everything, you know, just we're totally lined up with the practice and and we really want to do it. Um, And at the same time, when we sit down, the mind just doesn't go along with our intentions. This is particularly true for new students, but also many old students. People have been practicing for many years. The first couple of days of the retreat are really difficult, really challenging. The mind is all over the place. But so often, the difference between sometimes older students, people who have been practicing, say, have had two or three or four retreats or more, is that They're much more equanimous with the fact that the mind is really crazy. You know, the mind is really out of control. They've been there. They've seen it. You know, they've been with themselves under, the, under those conditions before. And they also know it changes. So sometimes they have a little bit more patience. Not always, but sometimes. What the Buddha discovered 2,600 years ago was that it was possible to train the mind. That's quite a remarkable discovery, that it was possible to train the mind. He discovered that through his own practice. And what he discovered was that this training consisted of a sustained attention, practicing a sustained attention to the present moment, to what was happening. Very, very, very simple approach to discovering what is true. You know, it's so simple that really oftentimes it's the last thing that we would think of. That we can discover what is true, we can explore and investigate into the nature of who we are, into the nature of, uh, of our suffering by simply paying very careful attention, you know, very undistracted attention to the nature of our experience. And what he discovered was, through this attention, clarity 
kind of awakened an intelligence, a wisdom, but then allowed him to let go of unnecessary suffering. He let go of suffering. But in order to let go of the suffering, we have to see things just as they are. Not as we think they are, not as the way they should be or could be or shouldn't be, but just as they are. In our retreat, in many, many ways, we're naked. So many of the defenses that we usually have, so many of the distractions that we usually have, we let go, we renounce for the time being. And we're left with ourselves. This discovery for him wasn't enough. You know, I mean, it certainly seemed to solve his problems. But the genius of the Buddha, the genius of the Buddha, was that he found a way. He found a path to train the mind. Instead of just speaking liberation or just walking around telling people to be present, wake into your true nature, that might be helpful to a few people. But for most of us, we'd be sitting here scratching our heads if the instruction was, okay, just be present. There wouldn't be 100 people in this room right now. Uh, It wouldn't be at the end, that's for sure. Uh, It's not enough, quite simply, for most of us. It's really not enough. You know, given the strength of habitual thinking, it's really not enough to just say, be present. We need a way. We need uh, the present moment to be accessible. Of course, this this becomes accessible through training. And to me, that's the brilliance of the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness is it really lays out in a very systematic way what the path is, what the practice is, you know, how to realize the truth, how to let go of your suffering, how to be uh, in, the, in the moment in a full way. Now, under the contemplation or first foundation of mindfulness, contemplation of the body, there are many contemplations, and I'm not going to go into all of them now, uh, but I'll talk about just a few, some of them that are, I think, particularly relevant to retreat practice, to what we're doing here that are tied in very much so. What we're really doing right now is right out of this discourse. I mean, quite exactly right out of it. All the practices that we're doing are really coming right now pretty much out of this uh, discourse, but also more specifically out of the first foundation of mindfulness. And one of the primary, and and really it's the first in the list, doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important, it's just one in a list, one method. But it is the first one in the list, and it's one that we also teach quite a bit on on this retreat and in Vipassana in general, which is mindfulness of breathing. It's important when we begin to talk about mindfulness of breathing practice. This is sometimes a difficult lesson to get, um, but it's, it's not a breathing practice. We don't need to practice breathing. You're already breathing. Uh, you may not be breathing the way you want to be breathing. Uh, that might be deep and free and expansive and you know, chest-filled, uh, whatever the image might be, long, um, calm, subtle, whatever the images are. But we are breathing, uh, so that's fortunate. Uh, 
It helps us in our practice. Okay? So what the Buddha discovered was, well, why not take this process, you know, one that's intimately linked with life, with nature, and why not take this breathing practice and begin to pay attention to it? It's happening. It's part of our experience. It's a very important aspect of our experience. So why not begin to pay attention to it? And in fact, in some cases, pay exclusive attention to it, taking periods of meditation where you focus your awareness, you focus your mindfulness on the breathing process. So it's not just one object and many but it's just, it's the exclusive object. And in some ways, that's what we do with the sitting. Even though we are emphasizing sitting posture, and I'll get to that, that's one of the contemplations. You know, a, a concentration practice in working with the breathing is that you're with the breathing, tension wanders away, very simple practice. You acknowledge it, and then you let it go, and you come back to the breathing. And that's a very focused mindfulness of breathing practice. So it's not a breathing practice, it's a mindfulness practice. Sometimes when we begin this mindfulness of breathing practice, we encounter difficulties. And one very common one is that we find that we start controlling our breath. You know, we might hear the instructions, don't control your breathing, but that kind of makes you control it even more. Uh, so you, know, you start finding that when you observe the breathing, you start controlling it, you try to make it longer, or you might control the in-breath, the out-breath, and it starts getting complicated. Somewhat surprisingly, I think the most effective antidote for working with controlling the breath is not to try to fix that problem, not to try to fix the tension around controlling the breath. In other words, not to try to not control your breathing. Because, of course, you know, you're you're laughing. You can see you're adding to that, that whole energy around controlling. Instead of doing that, you simply include the moments that you're controlling it in the field of mindfulness. In other words, if you're controlling the in-breath, you know, say you notice that you're making the in-breath a little bit longer. You're observing the in-breath, and then you just make a very non-judgmental note. Oh, controlling, you know, just that one moment, and then you know, maybe you stop controlling it, then you're on an out-breath, and then maybe you notice all the way towards the end of the out-breath, you try to stretch it out a little bit so you're controlling it. And again, you make a mental note. Oh, you're watching the breathing, and oh, controlling, breathing, breathing, controlling, breathing, breathing. So that you don't reinforce the conditioning to control the breathing. In fact, the effect that mindfulness has is that it allows us to let go of our conditioning. And so letting go of the controlling, of course, requires patience. But simply being mindful of that moment that you find that you're controlling it is a way of letting go of the controlling. It's certainly true was my own experience in practice because when I started practicing, I really spent a lot of time controlling my breathing and I couldn't get out of the way. And someone said, someone gave me very good advice, just pay attention to those moments where even if it's one moment every in-breath or out-breath, notice that moment that you're controlling it. And over a period of time, and it didn't really take that long, I just found out, you know, just... It just dissolved on its own. I didn't even notice it going away, but no longer was I controlling the breath. So as a way of working with that, as a way of freeing that one up, it's the, trusting the power of mindfulness. Just be aware that you're controlling it. 
training this mind, you know, this wild monkey, trying to get this wild monkey to kind of steady and stay on one branch for a while. Obviously it takes patience. But again, the reason we start with the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body, okay, is, is precisely because thinking is so powerful that for most of us to just come into the present at all you know, is a challenge. But the way to come into the moment in the present, the way to get sort of more inwardly balanced and centered and focused is pay attention to a physical sensation. You know, instead of trying to explore or figure out your thoughts or to try to understand the connection between this and that reaction, instead of or kind of going down that slippery slope of mindfulness of thinking right away, which we will get to on this retreat, it's the third foundation, but what he did was start with the first foundation, the anchor. That'll be your anchor. If there's confusion in the mind, you're sitting there in this confusion, come back to the body. Simple. Come back to the breathing. You know, make that connection to the body as a way of beginning to cut through the power of habitual thinking. And again, for most of us, when we come into this practice, uh, habit is more powerful than mindfulness. You know, we've been practicing habits all our lives, and most of us haven't been practicing mindfulness very long. So habitual thoughts tend to take over a lot, and I'm sure you've noticed that with the wandering mind. But in the long run, with practice, and it's very surprising, Mindfulness is much more powerful than habitual thinking. Mindfulness can actually lead to freedom and liberation, whereas habitual thinking just tends to reinforce its conditioning. It just, it's cyclical. It goes around and around and around because there's not fresh awareness in it. And mindfulness is that capacity to open to your experience in a fresh way, and that's where we discover freedom. That's where we see things in a new way. You know, that's where the creative intelligence of the mind is, is really in awareness. And then when you have awareness, of course, then you can use your thinking more creatively. It's not habitual anymore. You have more control over your thinking. You can think more clearly. So we need this anchor in the body, and of course the breathing is certainly one way of anchoring our attention in the present. There's fruits that come out of limiting the attention. You may not have tasted too many of these fruits yet, but... If you stay focused on the breathing or one object, there are many objects of mindfulness that can develop concentration. Breathing is just one. But if you focus your attention and you do this practice for a while, what happens is that concentration develops. That ability to focus and sustain your attention in the present develops and strengthens itself. And the fruit of that is it leads to more calm and tranquility. It leads to more calm and tranquility. Now, the danger in just doing concentration practice, say, always just doing one exclusive object, and we won't just stay there this whole time during this retreat. Danger is sometimes you get attached. You know, you start feeling a little concentrated, and with that comes a feeling of inner contentment. And it's very important to taste that inner contentment and peace, definitely. But also, it's often very seductive to attach to it, to hold on to it. You know, and what that ends up doing, of course, is it undermines the calm that you're experiencing from the concentration, and it creates tension in the mind. That kind of happiness is really conditional. At the same time, concentration is essential for investigating, for doing this practice, for taking a look at your body, observing mental states. We all need a certain kind of 
level of concentration, but that's only one factor of awakening. There are seven factors of awakening. One of them is concentration. Sometimes we get into a, a notion in our head that if we're not really focused and concentrated, our practice isn't going well. But that's not true. That's not true. You don't have to be totally focused and concentrated with no thoughts in your mind to have good, uh, good practice. If you did, you would be pretty dysfunctional uh, in the world because then you couldn't have thoughts. Otherwise, you weren't practicing or you weren't doing it right. So we need to make room for thoughts. At the same time, to train the mind to pay attention, we have to learn how to work with our thoughts so that they work for us rather than against us. So using this anchor and making that commitment to the body and the breathing is very important. One last fruit of working with the breathing that I'll mention is that, and this is true for many objects, but talking about breathing right now, is that by paying attention to the breathing in a sustained way, we can begin to notice the impermanent nature of the breath. You know, we begin to notice that there's an in-breath and an out-breath, and that it's changing you know, from one moment to the next, when the mind starts getting quiet, you start noticing maybe that the breathing is changing. It's irregular. It's not, it's not, one bre- it's not the same breath every time. It's a, it's a new moment in time. So you start getting a little uh, taste of impermanence. You start getting a taste of the nature of the body. And you start beginning to see that this breathing process is part of nature. We're part of nature. You know, we're not separate beings. And so this insight into impermanence is very important, and it can come through this very live process of breathing if we pay attention to it with a quiet mind. Another practice, another mindfulness of the body practice, another contemplation, is the four postures. And, you know, which we... We spend a lot of time, obviously, talking about the sitting and walking posture, but they're in, 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 the Buddha taught mindfulness in four postures, which is uh, sitting, you know that one, walking, and standing, and then lying down. You know, those are the four postures. And he really considered all of them as important. You know, to, to see if you could bring full attention to each posture to notice those transition times when you go from one posture to the next. With the sitting posture, again, something we're really emphasizing, kind of highlighting anyways in in this, is to begin to open to the body, you know, to to begin to feel the sitting, you know, more carefully, to begin to look at it, to to open to it, uh, to rest in the body, by first encouraging a little bit of relaxation in the body, you know, as we relax the area of the face. You know, there's a lot of parts of the body that we really can't relax that easy. Uh, a lot of tension in the body, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. But um, relaxing the face, sometimes it can be, can be easier, at least easier to soften around the eyes or soften around the mouth, relaxing the shoulders a little bit or the hands. That's a way of beginning to inhabit the body. That's a way of entering into the present in a more full way. 
You know, sometimes if you just think mindfulness of body is breathing, you forget the rest of your body. So coming into your body in a full way and then moving into the breathing, it's kind of like the body is holding the breath. You know, it's a, it's a more expansive, more relaxed, more stable place to be. So working with touch points like feeling the cushion or the chair, you know, feeling your hands resting, you know, coming into your body, giving yourself that opportunity um, to expand the field uh, of mindfulness of the body, to not just necessarily always be with the breathing. And a good example of this is when you're feeling sleepy. You know, all of us know what that feels like when you're feeling really sleepy and how difficult it is uh, to focus your attention on the breathing. An easier practice, and, some, and I think sometimes a more useful practice to do when you're feeling sleepy, is to simply feel the cushion. You know, just, that's your whole job. The whole time that you're just zonked out and you're waving back and forth and you're cursing the sitting and, you know, you really wish you weren't here and all those thoughts that are coming up. And what you say to yourself, the little voice says, okay, I'm going to try to stay present. There's no way I can get to the breath. Feel the cushion that you're sitting on. And that's your only job, is just to feel that cushion. It's surprising how well this works. Because the cushion, you know, there's a lot of pressure, and a lot of contact on that cushion. You know, that you can feel the body. You know, it's something more, sometimes more concrete, something more stable, more solid, to rest your attention on, rather than the breathing, which sometimes, of course, gets very subtle. So coming into the body that way, very useful for trying to bring the mind more into balance, for being more present, when you're facing certain kinds of difficulties like restlessness or sleepiness. Useful working with the postures that way. When you're standing in line, uh, waiting uh, to eat, you know, go to the touch point at the bottoms of your feet. You know, otherwise, what happens is you get caught up in all your reactions and thoughts and feelings about lunch and planning and strategizing, all sorts of stuff, that go, fear, all the things that come up, as a way of regaining your balance, as a way of dropping into the present and letting go of those habitual thoughts. Just feel the touch points at the bottoms of your feet. It's very simple. You can do it with your eyes open. You don't have to close your eyes. In fact, if you're in line and the line's moving, don't close your eyes. You know, keep them open. Keep moving. But keep your attention at the bottoms of your feet. You'll find that it's very balancing. So using the four postures as a way of staying balanced and centered. Another contemplation of the body, uh, one that we emphasize a lot here on retreat, and I think... Um, the conditions on retreat really support this practice. Uh, but it's also a practice that we work with a lot in Cambridge, in our center. You know, we work a lot around this practice of full awareness. It's a contemplation, full awareness. And let me read what the Buddha has to say about full awareness. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending their limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing their robes and carrying their outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. 
covers a lot there. You can see from that what he's pointing to is to pay attention to your daily activities. It's so important to get over this dualistic notion right from the beginning of what meditation is. Meditation isn't just what you're doing when you're sitting and walking. It's what you're doing. That's what meditation is. And so taking up daily activities, on retreat you get a lot of support for that, a lot of support for that. In daily life, you get very, very little support for that. You know, and that's why we talk about it so much in Cambridge, because one, we know it's very important to take practices like brushing your teeth, taking a shower, washing the dishes, driving your car, standing in the subway, walking down the street. You, know, you take all of those. You don't do them super slowly. Okay? N- nobody does them super slowly. Otherwise, they get in big trouble. Uh, but you do them mindfully. You practice with it. You don't always remember, but you practice with it. On retreat, you know, it's not that often when you really are hurried. You know, sometimes you have a yogi job and you have to get back into the hall and it's kind of chaotic and fast-moving. Um, but a lot of the jobs, you know, you, you've got the time and you've got the conditions, the space and the reminders to say, hey, wait a second, you know, when I'm vacuuming these stairs, this is my practice. You know, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to see if I can stay in my body while I'm vacuuming. Can I stay in my body when I'm washing the dishes or cleaning the kitchen floor or cleaning the bathroom? Can I stay very connected to my experience by paying attention, by staying in the body itself? And of course you can with training. And it's very, very liberating. It transforms the habitual nature of our daily activities into something that's alive. A place where we can uh, develop wisdom, insight, compassion. For me, a good example of this is work period. Everybody here has a work period. And sometimes there's really high drama during the work periods. It's mostly internalized drama, but it, you know, a lot of people find work periods quite disruptive. You know, sometimes people get jobs when they get... I assume, was everybody assigned a job or did they get to choose? Oh, you get to choose. <laughs> That's true. When I teach with Larry sometimes, he tells the staff, don't give people a choice. Just, just give them their job. And uh, I think he's the only one that does that. <laughs> It's an unpopular policy. Um, but the fact is, you know, you, you know, just doing your work period job, you know, there's so many things that you can see in relationship to a very simple activity. Uh, you know, you could, uh, sometimes you think you're above it. You know, like, why are you doing this lowly job when somebody else has, you know, some cleaning the meditation hall or, or maybe a high-status job and you're stuck in the bathrooms in the Catskills or something like that. <laughs> Or maybe you don't feel like you're worthy of the job you're doing. You know, sometimes people think that. They really worry about how they're doing, and they don't think they're doing it well enough. Uh, and there can be a lot of worry and anxiety and stress around their jobs. Uh, people get agitated a lot when they're during work periods. They get annoyed at others. Maybe they're walking in their way or getting in their way. Or, uh, there can be a lot of pride 
doing a good job. You know, hopefully everybody will notice. Uh, <laughs> there can be aversion to what you're doing. You know, almost nobody likes to clean the bathrooms, although occasionally we do find somebody who actually enjoys it. Uh, but there can be a lot of aversion to those jobs. Um, fear of criticism. You're afraid that the staff person is going to come up and say, you know, you're not doing it right. Um, so all sorts of you know, issues and things get provoked in the work period. If you find that it becomes a kind of an agitated time for you, one that, you know, it kind of feels really different, I mean, qualitatively different than the rest of your day, one very useful practice is to remember this first foundation of mindfulness and to try to stay in your body, try to settle, use your body, take a moment and pause. Nobody is going to give you a hard time, I hope. Uh, pause for a few seconds. If you find that you're all over the place or you're reacting strongly toward or against something, and just come back into your body and see if you can just relax and rest in your body when you're doing the physical uh, work. Extremely helpful for regaining your balance. It's very empowering to do that. And it also translates into your everyday life. You know, there are a lot of people that come through the center here that do work work, uh, retreats. In fact, they seem to be getting more popular. There's a few people on this retreat who are doing work retreats. And I really think it's great when people do work retreats. And, you know, so often when I see them in interviews, you know, they participate in this retreat quite a bit with the sitting, but they also are doing work, work periods during the afternoon or the morning session. Um, and so many of them will come in and say, you know, this is really a great way for me to practice because I'm really doing this full awareness practice. You know, I'm really taking this up. And when I leave here, you know, so often I find that I'm able to be just much more mindful in what I'm doing. And, and for most of us, we have to work for a living. So a lot of hours are spent that way. So here at the center, you know, the conditions really support that level of mindfulness. So we want to encourage you to take advantage of every day that you're here. Take advantage of the silence and the fact that you don't have to move so quickly. And also it's very simple. Oftentimes your jobs are relatively simple. The environment is certainly simple. And so that allows us, that creates the conditions, the space to focus your attention on what you're doing. So trying to take each moment, one moment at a time, by staying connected to your body. Very briefly, eating meditation just want to say a couple things about that. We'll say probably more about that as the retreat goes on. But one, one uh, common dilemma sometimes people run into it in the eating meditation is kind of how much food to take. Um, and what we find on retreat, it's interesting. A lot of people, when they first get to retreat, you know, they, they realize that after the first tea, that it's not going to be like a full-blown meal. So you better make sure you're full by lunch, at lunchtime. And so people will get in line and really pile it in just to make sure that they're not hungry. Um, and you know what, what they find, oftentimes it just takes one lunch when you're about halfway through your lunch and you realize, uh-oh, look at all the food I took. You know, I'm, I'm stuck with this. You know, what am I going to do? And they realize that they don't necessarily need that much you know, because you're eating more slowly. You're not maybe as physically active as we might, might be. And so... Part of a mindfulness of body practice is developing that sensitivity to what your body needs. You know, and, and, and experimenting with that and seeing, 
you know, not to make a trip out of eating less, not to make a virtue out of eating less, but it's eating enough is what matters. You know, and, and to try to discover for that, because in this context it might be a little bit different than in another context. So to be more mindful of that and to notice the effect that food has on you. It's part of the mind, mindfulness of the first foundation practice, being, learning how to be sensitive about that. A final contemplation is, I think, very uh, related to a lot of what people have been reporting in their interviews, and I'm sure many of you are experiencing uh, in your sitting, which is working with pain. I wanted to talk a little bit about working with pain, because, of course, painful physical sensations is certainly part of working in the first foundation of mindfulness. In working with pain, learning how to discover how to work with pain in a different way than we normally would. You know, most normally what we try to do is avoid pain at all costs. But in meditation, what we try to do is apply a wise effort in working with pain. And what I mean by wise effort is a balanced effort. Almost everybody encounters some discomfort in their sitting walking practice. You know, it's rare that somebody sits without ever experiencing some discomfort. Um, so it can be a significant aspect of your experience on the cushion, certainly. So learning how to work with that in a skillful way, in a wise way, is, is quite important. Um, and when I talk about working in a balanced way, what I mean is being both gentle, so you have a gentle, you're cultivating a gentleness towards yourself, but also a perseverance. Another, I think, brilliant analogy that the Buddha uh, talked about when he described what wise effort was. He described it as learning how to tune the strings of a lute. Learning how to tune the strings. If the strings are too lax, really it's impossible to create music. It's impossible to really play it and play music. If they're too tight, it really doesn't work. It hurts. It sounds too tinny. And that's what we want, to, that's those two extremes, in other words, between being lax and striving, the tightness of striving. What we want to do is find a balance somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. And that balance is really up to everybody to discover you know, what that balance is for you in working with pain. There are a lot of different factors in trying to discover that. You know, how to work with pain in a skillful way, given your body and given your situation. First of all, a lot of us have different conditioning around pain you know, and also around practice itself. You know, some of our conditioning is that we have a lot of fear about pain. You know, some of us are just really, really terrified of Physical pain or emotional pain, say. Let's, let's focus on the physical. Physical pain. And so a lot of our conditioning is, is like I said, to try to get away from it. You know, to, to see pain as something really bad and terrifying, where there's a lot of fear around it. And, you know, we get that a lot from our parents or from family or from our, our education system, from our training. You know, this culture, a lot of this culture is around uh, different strategies to avoid pain. 
And so we pick up on that conditioning. You know, and, and the difficulty when we have that kind of conditioning when we sit is that when we do encounter pain, you know, we start moving a lot or, or we have a lot of resistance or aversion or judgments about it. It's bad. It shouldn't be happening. You know, and then we, don't, then we kind of give up. You know, we give up on trying. Or we give up and we say, there's just no way I could even think about paying attention to that pain. Even if it's mild, I'm talking about. Even if it's just kind of a little bit of tension in the body. For some of us, that's a very difficult thing to just pay attention to in an open-hearted way. And so sometimes that leads to too much laxness. And, that, and, and the problem with that is it doesn't allow us to begin to explore the nature of pain. And if we're constantly living our lives or living our practice and trying to avoid pain, it just reinforces more fear. What we find is that our lives become very limited. You know, because pain, of course, is part of life. It's part of, it's part of the nature of the body. You know, discomfort is... You're, we're always subject you know, I mean, just the climate, the weather, the environment, uh, you know, sitting longer than you want to, uh, you know, all sorts of things affect and influence our body, and we're subject to that. You know, so pain is really is a natural part of life. It's not necessarily a good thing, so you don't want to make a virtue out of it also. That's a mistake. But it's not a bad thing. You don't need the value judgment in working with pain. In fact, it's very liberating when you encounter pain, you know, when you're working with discomfort, to let go of the value judgment. Of course, that's the power of mindfulness. If you pay attention to it, if you can open to it with a more open heart, you're training yourself to let go of that real value judgment that this is a negative energy and you shouldn't be experiencing it. You know, a lot of times when we discover tension in the body, you know, that's what happens. As soon as we discover that tension, you know, oh, that's shouldn't have that tension. I should be doing more yoga, I should be doing this, I should be doing that, I should be doing that, I should be doing that. And the fact is, you know, it's very difficult to live life, I think, and just not accumulate some degree of tension in the body. Uh, I mean, some people, you know, there's this flow between yoga communities now and Vipassana. And a lot of Vipassana yogis who probably said, I'll never practice yoga, and now, you know, going to yoga centers and Doing yoga is part of an integrated practice of yoga and Vipassana. And a lot of yoga students are certainly coming to IMS and inviting Vipassana uh, teachers to their community. And so there's this, I think, healthy flow you know, of energy. But one thing I, I notice as a Vipassana teacher anyways is that when I, I see I'm seeing more and more yoga students that, uh, when, when on, especially on their first retreat, you know, they'll come in and they'll just sometimes say, I had no idea there was this much tension. In my body, you know, and and, th- and this is coming from people who've been practicing yoga, who have extremely healthy, flexible bodies, you know. But what happens sometimes in vipassana is that the mind gets more concentrated and quieter, and you start, you know, seeing things. You start discovering different levels within the body, and you encounter tension. And there are different kinds of pain. There's that kind of tension that we tend to accumulate, you know, where it might be in the body. Uh, you know, just through kind of the normal, stressful, day-to-day life. But then there are other kinds of pain. There's other kinds of physical difficulties that we have to relate to differently. With tension, for instance, it's very useful to see if you can sit through some of this tension and then see if you can work on your relationship to it. Because oftentimes the difficulty on retreat is it's not necessarily the tension but it's one's relationship to the tension. In other words, there's the physical tension of, of 
discomfort and there's a certain kind of suffering in that. But the greater suffering then comes about what you're doing to it, what you're doing to yourself, the self-judging, the self-condemning, the strategizing, the planning, the wanting to fix it, the wanting to get away from it, uh, wishing it would go away so you can have a moment's peace. You know, having that kind of relationship to it, of course, then creates more inner tension anyway. It's not necessarily more physical tension, but certainly more inner tension and really keeps peace from developing. So softening our relationship to that kind of tension, very useful to stretch into it a little bit and try to sit through it. And everybody in this room, you know, I think, it, you know, who have some tension in their body, you know, this, this room has been very quiet. And just through the act of sitting and participating in a retreat, most of us are really stretching. You know, we're working much harder than we might normally make. And I think, and I think that's good effort for most of us. But there's some kinds of difficulties. There's illnesses. There's some traumas to the body. There's injured bodies. You know, we have, all have different bodies. And where we get into the balance is, is in those kinds of situations, you don't want to push it. You know, if you have an injured back, you don't want to just sit there, you know, like a dummy, basically, and just watch that back pain the whole time. You know, meanwhile, you know you have a back pain, bad back, and you're hurting yourself. You know, you don't want, you don't want to have that blind effort or that blind faith, in a sense, in the practice to do that. What you want to do is take care of your back. Try to find a balance. Do some standing. Sit in a chair. Work at experimenting with different postures so that you can be a little bit more comfortable. That's true even with a lot of body tension. If you've discovered a lot of body tension, every once in a while it's very helpful to give yourself a break and sit in a chair. Or find some other position that is just more comfortable. You can go back your other position, but it can be very freeing to let go of this rigid relationship to formal practice. You know, it can be humbling. Some of us never would think of sitting in a, med- in a chair until we come on retreat. You know, we have our cushion at home or whatever, and that's, that's fine. But in this particular situation, it might be very helpful to sit in a chair. So it's balanced. Knowing oneself helps a lot. And I think a lot of people that come to Vipassana have a lot of self-knowledge, and I think that's a strength in our culture. So people know a lot about themselves. And it, it, it's very useful to begin to see how you take your history and your conditioning into the retreat. And if you're a striver and an achiever, you know, and you come with an agenda, and you, are, you, know, you have a lot of expectations, or uh, you want something specific to happen, and you're willing to do anything to make it happen, uh, you're falling probably, you know, you're going to take that conditioning you know, into the sitting for sure. And oftentimes you'll find yourself in a striving camp. And if you're in that striving camp, I certainly, my first several years of practice, total devotee to the striving camp. You know, just kill myself, whatever it took. Uh, you know, I needed to find a balance. Sometimes some of us do too. But then, you know, sometimes, like I said, we can be lazy or we can be lax or we can be bored and not want to put the energy or the attention into the body, not just in working with pain, but working with anything. And so you want to find that balance where you come back, where you keep making that choice to come back to the present over and over again. Just make that choice. It's a wise choice. And it's a simple practice. Come into the body. Come to the breathing. Feel the touch points. I'm aware of the body. Just keep coming back over and over again. That's wise effort. Not to do it in a striving way, 
doing it without any expectation, without any agenda. You're simply just going to do your best. But not losing interest, not giving up, not feeling you might feel discouraged, disappointed. Don't buy into that. Now, that might be some of your conditioning, is when you hit something difficult, you tend to give up. Work through that. This is a good opportunity to work through that and stretch into that a little bit. If you feel discouraged, you know, try to you know, maybe give yourself a little bit more space, but then you know, stay with the practice. Don't give up on it. Stay with it. Might bear fruit. Finally, one insight, one very liberating insight that comes from working with the uh, first foundation of mindfulness is that we really begin to experience the body. When you live with your body in full awareness, when you're paying attention to it, you're becoming sensitive, you notice it changing, you notice how it feels after you eat, before you eat, you notice how it feels after you've worked or when you're sitting, you're paying attention to your experience, you're opening to your experience as it is. What we discover is that the body and who we are, you know, often we identify with the body, the body is part of nature. It's, it shares the exact same nature as that out there, the environment. Changing, not always subject to our control, quite unpredictable, no separate self in that. Nothing solid and fixed in the body. The body is changing all the time. So is the world that we're living in. And we're part of that. We're not separate. And there's a tremendous amount of suffering and discontent that comes when we identify with our body or we create that separation between our body and our environment, the body, our body and our world. And of course, it doesn't mean that you have to be indifferent to the body when we talk about this awareness. We don't want to develop indifference, but we want to cultivate awareness and compassion for the physical suffering that we might encounter. So we want to take care of our bodies but also take care of our awareness practice at the same time. So let's sit for a minute. 